Nehemiah chapter 1. This morning we are continuing this new study through the book of Nehemiah. We're finishing today a three-part look at an intro to Nehemiah. I thought initially it was going to be three parts, and then once we got into it, I was like, maybe it'll just be two. And then last week I was like, nope, nope, not going to be two, it's going to be three. So if, if you didn't catch the first two messages, uh, I encourage you, go back. You can go on our church app or on our website or even our Apple podcast and listen to last, uh, the last two studies, the last two intro, stu- intro studies. But we are going to actually be getting into Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It's not just a starting text for us today, uh, but just a reminder of what we've been looking at up to this point in our intro studies uh, in order to help us understand what Nehemiah was dealing with, the, the news of the Jewish people escaping, surviving captivity, the, the walls of Jerusalem being broken down, the gates being just piles of ash, and, and to begin providing some background and context, over the last two weeks, we've gone back in time. We went way, way back, looking at the promise that God made to Abram, became Abraham, the promise of the Jewish homeland, the covenant, the agreement that God made that actually had nothing to do with Abraham's part. And this was a great question even that came out of our home group the, the Wednesday afterwards. Like, why, did, why were the animals cut down the middle? What was the whole thing about walking? And, and knowing that in that time, that's how agreements were made. And to see even in that situation that Abram had fallen asleep. And, and when he opened his eyes, he awoke that God, in the form of that oven and the, and the, the smoke, I think it was, or whatever, the, the two emblems there going through, it was, it was God saying, it's actually, this all falls on me. Abram, it's not about how faithful you're going to be. It's about me being faithful. I'm going to do it. And, and to see how from that point on, we, we began to see how God was moving through the nation of Israel's history, getting them into the land, and then eventually them being conquered by the Babylonians, exiled from the land, all the way to God bringing them back after 70 years. And the temple being rebuilt, all the way to the return of the second group of exiles under the leadership of a, a priest and scribe named Ezra. We, we looked at those things to help provide some of the backdrop for what we're entering into in our study of the book of Nehemiah. But now in part three, we're going to conclude this intro by looking at the direct context and setting. We're going to look at who wrote this book, when it was written, what we know about Nehemiah, some of the key themes and emphasis, and, and close with why I believe this book is so important and relevant and applicable for us today. And so with all that in mind, starting in verse one of Nehemiah chapter one, we read the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem, And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. 
The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. We're going to dive into those verses in just a little bit, but I want us to first look at who wrote the book of Nehemiah and when it was written. Right away in verse 1, it says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, I think most of us would go, well, oh, duh, Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. But that doesn't automatically mean that Nehemiah was the person writing it. That does give some internal evidence for us that Nehemiah here is speaking in the first person. He's giving first-hand account throughout the majority of this book. And because of that, it would seem likely to us that he's the one who's writing this. But there is some external evidence in the form of Jewish tradition in the Hebrew canon of Scripture that says that Ezra the priest was actually the one who wrote this. In fact, in some of the manuscripts that they found, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. And so, some of the Jewish tradition actually says that Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles. He gave that whole history. That's why Second Chronicles ends the way that the book of Ezra begins. And that along with First and Second Chronicles, that Ezra wrote his book, Ezra, and also Nehemiah. We can't know for sure which of the two is correct, whether it was Nehemiah or Ezra who wrote this, but what we do know is that what's contained in this account came straight from the source. It came from Nehemiah himself, but added to the external evidence. Because there's always people who go, how can we trust the Bible? How can we know that these things really happened? Like, you know, because sometimes archaeologically, things don't get verified right away. There's things that have happened over even the last 60 years of excavation where people would read the Bible and they go, we don't know where this thing actually was. We don't know that this place actually exists. The, um, the, the pools of Siloam were one of those places that in Jerusalem were excavated, even I think over the last hundred years, where before that people would go, I don't know, this kind of seems made up. And then it's like, oh, there's the pools. We found them as we were digging. The Bible is true. And so the same thing is true for the book of Nehemiah. There were ancient documents found in Egypt. They're called the Elephantine Papyri. Elephantine, I think, had to do with the area that they found it, not because there was elephants there and teen. (laughs) I don't even know. (laughs) I I was trying to go somewhere with that and... I don't know. Things. Anyways. Whew. I told you I needed help. So they found these. There's a bunch of historical documents that are in there. Letters, birth records. There's all sorts of things that they found dated back to the time of Nehemiah. And these things verify the historical accuracy of the things written in the book of Nehemiah. In fact, within the Elephantine papyri, I think uh, they, they found um, written in there the name of Sanballat's son, as well as one of the priest's names are found in there. These things, again, they just verify what the Bible has already told us. Oftentimes, science and archaeology 
catch up to what we already have in Scripture. Scripture is not verifying science. Science just catches up and goes, oh, the Bible is right the whole time. You mean there was a beginning? Anyways. Now, for when the book was written, because of the time marker given to us in chapter 13, verse 6, we're told, where we're told that Nehemiah returned temporarily rarely to King Artaxerxes. This man, King Artaxerxes, was known as Artaxerxes Longimanus. And he was actually the stepson of Queen Esther. So cool sort of thing when we start to think about maybe the, the favor that God had given to Nehemiah. Why he would be looked at so favorably. Why would they be so okay to make these decrees and fund some of these efforts that, that God was already putting people in place. That, that when things happened, that there was people there that would go, hey, this guy's solid. We, we respect him. He's humble. He's a man of integrity. And, and God would be able to move within the, the leadership of these different kingdoms that existed. This was true even of the time of Nebuchadnezzar moving on into King Cyrus and King Darius. But in the 32nd year of his reign, we're told in chapter 13, verse 6, which was 12 years after Nehemiah was sent to Jerusalem, uh, because of that time marker and, and knowing historically when and how long King Artaxerxes reigned as king of Persia, this account could not have been written until 432 B.C., at the earliest. This means that chronologically, this book is the last of what we call the historical books of the Old Testament. Even though the book of Esther comes after this in our just progression of how it's laid out in our Bibles, chronologically, Nehemiah would actually be the the last of those historical books. And it's likely because of what the prophet Malachi speaks into in the ministry that God had given to him, it's likely that the prophet Malachi's ministry and his writings took place either during the time of what we find in the book of Nehemiah or shortly after what we see in the book of Nehemiah. But, but let's consider now who Nehemiah was. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Nehemiah identifies himself as the son of Hakaliah. And in verse 2 and elsewhere in this book, we know that he had a brother named Hanani. But that doesn't really tell us much about who Nehemiah was. And sadly, there's really not much known about Nehemiah as far as his lineage goes, besides those two pieces of information about his dad and his brother. But we do learn things about Nehemiah from this book. We know that he was a Jew, And as a Jew, he was part of an exiled people who were no longer living in their own land, were living under the rule of another empire, their own land being conquered by the Babylonians about 160 years earlier. And as an exile, he grew up outside of his homeland. We know from verse 1 that he was in Shushan, the citadel. So he was living in the capital city of the kingdom of Persia, and as we see that he didn't know about the then current state of his own people who were in Jerusalem, or what was going on with the city of Jerusalem, it becomes clear that Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. 
This means that Nehemiah was likely a third or fourth generation exile with probably either a grandparent or a great-grandparent who had originally been taken captive by the Babylonians and taken to Babylon. We know about Nehemiah that he was a man with a soft and compassionate and humble heart, which is clear not only in his response to the news about his people and Jerusalem weeping when he heard what was going on, but also is clear in how he approached the Lord in prayer, identifying himself with his rebellious nation who sinned against God. We see this as Nehemiah prays even in chapter 1 as he uses the word we in his prayer of confession. You know, it's amazing. We get these different moments. This is true of Daniel as well. And even uh, Ezra the priest. There's these prayers that we see in the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra and even here in Nehemiah chapter 1 where we don't ever see that these men were like these really rebellious, wicked people. There's no blatant or explicit sin listed for us about these guys. They seem like really godly dudes. In fact, for Daniel, we almost come away with feeling like the guy was perfect. We know he wasn't. But in each of those men's lives, we see these prayers in each of those books where as they're praying to God on behalf of the nation of Israel in these areas where they had rebelled against God and they had, they had acted wickedly and they'd sinned against him, each man says, we, Lord, we. And I love that example that we have, that humility, because it's so much easier and it's so much more natural to us to want to point the finger at other people and say, them, they sinned. I've been doing the right thing over here. God, they blew it. Instead of that humility that we see where it's like, God, I'm, I'm just as much a part of the problem. I'm a sinner. I need you, Lord, just as much as anybody else does. Lord, we've sinned. Nehemiah didn't hear the news and self-righteously stick up his nose at the report, nor was he calloused or indifferent when hearing the report. No, he cared about his people. He cared about what they were going through. He cared about the broken down state of the people and the city. He had deep compassion, a compassion that led him to seek the Lord, which then led him to action. We know from what we see of Nehemiah in this book that he was a man who knew and loved and wanted to honor his God, who had a deep and continual, continual and powerful prayer life, a, an amazing communion with his God. And we see that Nehemiah knew the word of God and wanted to walk in and obey God's word and see others do the same. We're going to see throughout this book that Nehemiah was a man who had a burden for the things of the Lord and the people of the Lord and for the house of the Lord. We know from what's written in this book that Nehemiah became the governor of Judah and was for some time. And we know from verse 11 of this chapter that he was the king's cupbearer which if we don't know much about the cupbearer role, we might just think that he was just some dude that just stood there with the cup. Oh, you're thirsty, king? Oh, you're thirsty? No. You said a parch. Are you parched? 
But that cupbearer role actually was really important. It was a really uh, amazing job for him to have. I want to show a little bit of information about that. Warren Wearsby said about Nehemiah's position as the king's cupbearer. We'll put it on the screen. He said, a cupbearer was much more than our modern butler. We can see this in Genesis chapter 40. It was a position of great responsibility and privilege. At each meal, he tested the king's wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. A man who stood that close to the king in public had to be handsome, cultured, knowledgeable in court procedures, and able to converse with the king and advise him if asked. And he says, see Genesis 41, 1 through 13. Because he had access to the king, the cupbearer was a man of great influence, which he could use for good or for evil. That Nehemiah, a Jew, held such an important position in the palace, speaks well of his character and ability. References Daniel 1, 1 through 4. For nearly a century, the Jewish remnant had been back in their own land, and Nehemiah could have joined them. But he chose to remain in the palace. It turned out that God had a work for him to do there that he could not have accomplished elsewhere. God put Nehemiah in Susa, also known as Shushan, just as he had put Esther there a generation before, and just as he had put Joseph in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon. He goes on to say, when God wants to accomplish a work, he always prepares his workers and puts them in the right places at the right time. I love the insight Warren Wearsby gives there, but also the application. You know, I think about this thing of God accomplishing a work, which is clear in the book of Nehemiah, but so much of that translates and is applicable to what we see today, the, the brokenness that exists, the work that we know God wants to do. We know that God's desire is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So there's this, there's this work that, that God's actively, intentionally, always seeking to accomplish in this world to reach the hearts of individuals. And it's us who, just like Nehemiah, just like Daniel, just like Esther, he's positioned us, you and me, individually, in workplaces and neighborhoods and families and friend circles in such a way where he's going, I have a work that I want to do, and I'm preparing you to be the people who partner with me in the work. You know, I, I don't have access to the people that you guys do. You guys have a sphere of influence that I don't have. You guys have the ear of people that I don't have. I'm very limited on Sunday mornings. And yet, we get to be dispersed throughout the week, scattered throughout our week into different settings where God is already, if we're mindful enough to see, he's already been preparing us. He's already been speaking to us. He's already maybe been stirring us. If, if we're not stirred, then that means there's some indifference. That means there's, there, there's some apathy, the apathy, there's some callousness of heart that we need God to actually do a work in us where he softens us and makes us able to see the things that he sees. And I love it that God has put us 
in the right place at the right time, even now, each of us. But let's look at the setting for the book of Nehemiah. I told you we we're going to get into those first three verses. We already looked at who Nehemiah is, but in verse 1, we see when this all started, that it was in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. Now, Kislev, which was a month in the Babylonian calendar, in our modern calendar, took place from mid-November to mid-December. So the start of the book of Nehemiah is kind of where we're at in our own point in time of the year. And the 20th year was a reference to the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, as I already shared. This time stamp, when taken with when we know that King Artaxerxes reigned as king of Persia, helps us to know that the beginning of this book took place in either 444 or 445 BC. And we know where Nehemiah lived and worked because in verse 1, he says that he was in Shushan, the citadel. We have a map image to show you so you get a better idea of where this was all taking place with Nehemiah. So if you look over to my far right here, Susa is Shushan. Susa there, Shushan, located in modern-day Iran, in the western kind of portion, Iran, 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 you know what I'm talking about. So if you look over here to my far left, the Mount of Olives right below Ai, that's Jerusalem. Right to the left of that, right to the left, to the left, the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so that's a, quite a distance there of where Nehemiah found himself at this point in time. His heart's way over here in Jerusalem. His heart's there with this people, but where he's at is way over 800 miles away in Susa, in Shushan. Now, I'm just going to say Shushan, even though it says Susa on the, on the uh, map, In our Bibles, it says Shushan. So Shushan was actually the capital of the Persian Empire. It was where the king's winter palace was located. That word citadel actually just speaks of the the capital. So Nehemiah, again, is a long ways away from the Jewish homeland. But in verse 2, we find that Hanani, one of his brethren, came with men from Judah. And Nehemiah says that he asked them, concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why Nehemiah's brother Hanani and some other men went to Judah. If maybe, you know, they had gone to see how things were going in Jerusalem and what was going on with their fellow Jews there. But the things that were in the front of Nehemiah's mind revolved around the great care and concern he had for his people and for his homeland that he had been exiled from. And so Nehemiah asks how the survivors, the exiles, who had returned to Judah were doing, and asked about the city. He wanted to know the state of the people and the state of the city, I'm sure, hoping to hear a great report that the people were flourishing 
that the city had been rebuilt and restored to its former glory, but that's not the news he heard. The news in verse 3 was that the survivors, the exiles, who had returned after the captivity and were living in the province of Judah, were there in great distress, great calamity, and in great reproach, meaning great shame, great disgrace. And that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Understand again, 92 years had now passed since the first group of exiles had returned to Jerusalem under the command of King Cyrus to go back and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And though the people were there, they're there now in Jerusalem, they weren't flourishing, they weren't doing well at all. The Jewish temple had been rebuilt, had been in place for about 72 years at this point. They had been preserved and protected by God from extermination, not just in the area of Judah, but throughout the sort of the known world there in the the, the Asian continent. About 30 years before this, because of how God used Esther and Mordecai. Ezra the priest had even led another group of exiles back to the land about 12 to 13 years before this. He was used by God to bring about some great reforms to where the people separated themselves from the ungodly relationships they had with the pagan people of the land in that area of Judah. And yet with all of that, we find here that the people were not flourishing spiritually or physically or as a community None of it was good. They were in great distress and reproach, and the walls and gates of the city still lay in ruin. And this report, as we'll see next week in verse 4, broke Nehemiah's heart. It caused him to weep. It drove him to prayer. But to help us understand the significance of the state of the people which was connected to the state of the city with the walls being broken down and the gates being destroyed by fire, I want to show you a couple really good quotes to help bring some clarity. First, I want to show you what David Gutzik said about this. He said, The bad state of the people and the bad state of the city walls were intimately connected. In the ancient world, a city without walls was a city completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. They had no defense, no protection at all. An unwalled city was always vulnerable, unable to safely house people and valuables. If there were anything of value in an unwalled city, it could be stolen away easily because there was no defense to stop it. Those living in an unwalled city lived in constant stress and tension. They never knew when they might be attacked and brutalized. Every man lived in constant fear for his wife and children. The temple could be rebuilt, but never made beautiful because anything valuable would be taken easily. No wonder the people lived in constant distress, in constant disgrace, reproach, living only as survivors. He goes on to say, God has more for us than to be mere survivors. God not only wants us to be conquerors, but more than conquerors, 
through him who loved us. And he references Romans chapter 8, verse 37. See, those are important things for us to know that help reveal the physical and emotional impact of the walls and gates being in ruin. But I love the application that David Gutzik brought out at the end there, that God has more for us than to be mere survivors, that he wants us to live victorious lives in Jesus. And I just want to ask today if anyone feels like they're just surviving because I believe there's a lot God wants to say through the book of Nehemiah to any who might be in that place. But one other quote I want to share that kind of speaks into a, a different aspect of this. Uh, and I'm going to be quoting Alan Redpath in coming weeks because his commentary on the book of Nehemiah is pretty epic. But Alan Redpath said this. He said, Jerusalem's walls were in ruins and its gates were burned. To a modern city, of course, that means nothing. But God's purpose for Jerusalem was that its walls should be salvation and its gates should be praise. And the emblems of salvation and praise lay in utter ruin. He says, is God calling some of us to weep and mourn over the ruin of these emblems in our lives? The symbol of salvation, the symbol of praise, the wall that marks our separation from the world, he asks, does it lie in tragic ruin? See, the impact of the walls and gates being in ruin were not just physical and emotional. The impact was also spiritual. Those emblems of salvation and praise being in ruin meant that the witness that God desired his people, the Jews, to be to every other nation and people in the world was also in ruin. The state of the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem were lacking those emblems, those symbols that if they were in place would lead others to find salvation in and want to give praise to the God of Israel. And as Alan Redpath pointed out, you know, we can find ourselves in a similar state spiritually, maybe because of unholy and sinful living our witness for Jesus lies in ruin to where there's nothing about our lives that would lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ or would cause others to want to praise our God. But know that if that is any of us, God is able to work. He desires to do something about that brokenness and bring about a work of rebuilding and reno renewal and restoration in our relationship with the Lord and in our witness for Jesus Christ. But let's consider some of the key themes and emphasis of Nehemiah. There's an image for this. Some of the key themes and emphasis of Nehemiah are prayer. Something like 15 times in this book where prayer happens, whether it's just a reference to someone praying or, or we're actually given all the contents of that prayer, about 15 times where prayer happens. We're going to see a, a, an emphasis on the Word of God. We're going to see this in it being taught, it being referenced in prayers that, that are prayed, but 
we're also going to see it in the importance of obedience to God's word. There's an emphasis in this book on rebuilding and renewal. Not just with the walls and the gates of the city, but also with the spiritual lives and the witness of the people. There's going to be an emphasis, there is an emphasis in in this book on serving God. There's an emphasis on handling opposition from the enemy, along with pressure and scare tactics and discouragements against God's work. We're going to see an emphasis on prioritizing the house of God and worshiping the Lord, and and also an emphasis on living a holy life unto God. And besides even these key emphasis and, and themes, we also learn a lot of lessons on godly leadership through this book in how Nehemiah led the people. All these key themes and emphasis are things that are our points of application for us. That we would be a people of prayer. That we would be a people of the word of God. That we'd be a people who are actively involved in the rebuilding and renewal that God's wanting to do, that he is doing. That we would be a people who serve God. That we'd be a people who know how to handle spiritual warfare and discouragement and opposition. That we'd be a people who prioritize the house of God and worship him, and that we'd be a people who live a holy life unto our God. Not to mention being people who are godly leaders, who lead well as servant leaders of Jesus. But, But finally, let's look at why this book is important, relevant, and applicable for us today. More than this being a book about Nehemiah, although Nehemiah is a a central figure in this book, it's really about God. God is the hero of the account of Nehemiah and all that took place because it was God who loved his people, the Jews, and wanted to bring about a work of rebuilding and renewal, doing something about their brokenness. It was God who put it in Nehemiah's heart to want to go to Jerusalem to rebuild what was broken. It was God who answered Nehemiah's prayers. It was was the good hand of God that was upon Nehemiah's life, giving him favor and courage and wisdom and strength to lead the people. It was God who helped Nehemiah not to buckle under the constant pressure and opposition of their enemies. It was the work of God through the word of God that drew the people back to living holy lives unto their God. It was because of God that the people wanted to renew a covenant with him to be the people he called them to be, who prioritized the things of the Lord and the word of the Lord and the house of the Lord once again. See, there was a work of rebuilding and renewal and revival that God wanted to bring about, not leaving the people in a state of distress and reproach and and brokenness and weakness and vulnerability, but drawing them out of those things and doing something in those things that only he can do. And he was going to use Nehemiah to help bring all of that about. And why is all this important? How is this applicable? You know, when I consider the state of our world... The state of unsaved people, 
the brokenness that exists spiritually as people are separated from God by their sin. How God wants to come in and save and forgive and bring about something new in their lives by his grace and through the power of his spirit. I believe God wants to stir us to have his heart and his eyes for lost people. That we would be burdened and broken over the destruction that we see in people's lives. That we would be given the love and compassion of Jesus for for them. That we would be continually praying for lost people. That we'd be led by the Spirit of God. That we would become instruments in the hand of God. That help others come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as we show his love and share his gospel. But when I consider the state of the church in the world, how the witness of the church, how the witness of many Christians in different ways and in different areas has been damaged, has been ruined, that's in, in some settings and circumstances that those emblems of salvation and praise just aren't what they used to be. I mean, we, we see it. When I consider how some in the church have moved away from holding fast to God's word and have even disregarded God's word and created a Christianity of their own making where they define what holiness is and what sin is. And when I think about the apathy and complacency that exists in the church today, in the the lives of believers today, where we've settled for surviving or neglected the house of the Lord and the kingdom of the Lord and the commission of the Lord, I believe God wants to rebuild the ruins of our witness I believe he wants to cause those who have drifted from him and his word to return. I believe he wants those who have disregarded his word and and have created a Christianity of their own making, wanting them to repent and submit their lives to his authority. I believe he wants to do a work of rebuilding and renewal and revival that would bring people out of their apathy out of their complacency, out of indifference, and out of just surviving. Away from neglect of the house and kingdom and commission of the Lord to being a people who are truly on fire for Jesus Christ in these days. You know, we see so much, we're, we, I think, because, I think we've been trained in a lot of ways to become indifferent. I think media has trained us to become indifferent because something really horrible is shown to us in a moment, given five seconds of airtime and then something else, moving on to some other story. And we become desensitized to tragedy, to brokenness, to hurt. To the, to, the, to the desperate need of, of the lost around us that we've been trained to just kind of go, oh, that's bad. Okay, back to my life. Oh, man, I can't, like, this person's so broken. They're so in need of, okay, well, I've got other things going on. 
we've been trained to just kind of, we take something, we process it for a moment, and we move on. Instead of seeing what, what, what's happening and be broken and burdened by the Lord in light of those things that, and, and becoming a people of prayer. I, I think about times in our church even, in the past, where I've, I can look back and I, I can see a vibrancy. I can see just like a, almost like a greater flourishing. And when I think back about those times, and those points of times even, and I'm not saying that that's not true of what God's doing right now, but when I look back and I try to pinpoint like what, was, what were we doing maybe differently? What was happening at that time? I remember how much of a priority and more of a priority our pre-service prayer time was even on Sunday mornings. Our time of gathering to seek the heart of God for each other and for our service and for our community and our world and the things that were happening, that as that part's dwindled, we have a little remnant, and God bless that remnant of those people. I'm so thankful for those who come on Sunday morning for prayer in the morning. But Charles Spurgeon, he said that the, the prayer meeting of their church was the boiler room of the church, that he believed God used that time to fuel everything that happened. Everything that, that took place was being fueled by the prayers of the saints. What's happened to us? Have our priorities shifted? Have we become indifferent? And this isn't meant to be a rebuke. If it, I want to see God do those things again. I want to see a return to prioritizing the things of the Lord like maybe we once did. That maybe some of the things we're wanting to see, I would love to see more outreach happen. There's really nothing going on in that way. How are we going to see that happen? I don't think we're going to see it happen unless we are actively, intentionally, continually praying, not just on our own, but together as the people of God, that God would give us vision and birth things in our heart and burden us for what he would have us to be a part of here in our area to reach people for Jesus Christ. There's a rebuilding I believe God wants to do in even our church in these days. A renewal. We've been through a weird season of time the last couple years. And I think God's calling us back. Not a call back, like do all the exact things that you did before. But if we're feeling like something's missing, like what is it that God's wanting to do in us? What is it that God's wanting to do in me? What's he wanting to do in you? What are those things? How are, what are those areas that God's calling us to today? The example of, of Nehemiah, what we're going to see throughout this book is not, well, that was great for them. It's God, do that with us. Do that in our world today, Lord. There's brokenness everywhere. Stuff lies in ruins all over the place. Do we just look around and go, stinks for them. Hope someone helps them. Lord, send them someone. Or are we going to pray and then see God might be sending us? God, God might be rallying us. God might be raising us up to be those people 
to stand in the gap. Who are going to be the people to stand in the gap? The church down the street? Why would we ever think, well, there's other believers? We're believers. We're the ambassadors. We're the citizens of heaven that he's left here. The time is now. I want to close with one final quote. I know I already quoted him once, but Alan Redpath said this. Thinking about this idea of the walls and things being in ruin and what we desire to see God do. He says, there is a wall to be built around the city of your soul. There's a wall to be built, a testimony to be erected around your church. There is a wall of witness and testimony to be built around the whole kingdom of God in all the world. Whether you be concerned primarily with building the wall in your own soul or with building the wall of your church or with building the wall of the kingdom of God throughout the whole world, you will discover that there is no winning without warfare. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. He says, for whenever the people of God say, let us arise and build, Satan says, let me arise and oppose. The work before us is great. And it could feel overwhelming. When we look at like the whole state of what's going on, and even what's happening like in the Bay Area, we're like, if we just look at all like at the greatness of the, of the things that we would love to see God work in and, and, and see overcome maybe, it can get overwhelming to us. The work before us is great, but would we, remi- would we, we remind ourselves, would we remember today that though the work is great, our God is greater. He's greater. He's not looking at the things that are going on in our world and go, oh man, I just, I don't have enough. I don't have the power to do something. I don't have enough people to do something with. I mean, if we look at the st- statistics of what supposedly is a Christian nation, he's got plenty of people to use, to rally, to, to rise up, to empower, to send out. But he's looking to us. He's wanting to use us. I believe he's wanting to, to do a fresh and powerful work in us, individually, in our church here, corporately. And I'm excited for how he's going to use this study of the book of Nehemiah in our lives, individually, and in our church in the coming days. I'm not going to tell you how many days, because we know how that works out. I'm going to have the worship team come back up, though. In closing, you know, what, what's God speaking to you today? I know this was an intro study, but there's, you know, there are things here. What work of rebuilding and renewal is needed in each of our lives? Are there things that we've just kind of let stay in a place of, of ruin? I mean, think about that. 92 years, the people are living there and the walls were just the same. The gates were just the same. They were, it's like, oh cool, we got our temple, but it's okay that anyone could come in, steal the gold away, steal the stuff away, come in and attack us. Like, they never, they never did anything. 
They did that initial attempt when they were rebuilding the temple, but after the opposition came, it was like they just resorted to this place of like, I guess this is just our life now. Where have maybe some of us just gone and looked at some of the ruins, some of the things that are there, and we've just gone, well, that's just kind of how it's going to be. But God's going, it doesn't have to be that way. I can do something there. <laughs> kind of work of rebuilding and renewal is needed, not only in our lives individual, maybe in our families, in our marriages, in the lives of our friends and our coworkers. The Lord wants to work, and He is at work. And listen, He's still looking for men and women to be His instruments in this world. The eyes of the Lord scan to and fro throughout the earth. Whose heart is towards Him? If our hearts are towards Him, then would we... Say, Lord, do what you want. Maybe we've gotten into this place of indifference and apathy and we're going, this morning, maybe, maybe light bulbs are going off for some of us and we're going, man, why have I allowed it to stay that way? Why have I allowed my heart to close up towards people? Why has my love grown cold maybe in some ways? And not to leave it there, but to bring it to the Lord and say, God, change me. Soften me. Lord, work in me. Lord, work in this situation. Lord, work in my marriage. Work with my, in my friend's life. Lord, work with my coworkers. Lord, work in our communities. God, you are a God who loves to, to rebuild and renew broken things. And would he start with us? But look, if you're here this morning and you've never just first opened your heart to Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that our sin separates us from God. But God didn't want to leave us in that separated state. He didn't want to leave us in a place where if we continue on that road... What awaits us is eternal destruction. He wanted to do something about that. And so he sent his son here, came here into this world to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that you and I deserved, to take our sin, to take our punishment, to take our shame, to take our guilt. And in return, he's going, just put your faith in me. Believe in me, trust in me. If, if we'll repent, if we'll turn away from our sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, the Bible says he will save us. Save us. That he'll forgive us, that he'll cleanse us. In God there is love, real love, like we've never known. That we've never truly seen in this world. That there's a love that God has for you and me, that seeing us at our very worst, he still died for us. And he's looking to us today and he's saying, look, I want to save you. I'm able to save you. But at the same time, he won't override our free will. 
He wants us to humble ourselves before him and to say, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need your salvation. To put our faith in him. And this morning, I want to give that invitation as we close in prayer here before these songs. Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this book of Nehemiah that we're going to be getting into. Lord, I'm excited for what you're going to do, for what you're going to speak, for the ways that you're going to move. Lord, I'm, I'm excited and I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm prayerful, Lord, that there's a work of rebuilding and renewal that, Lord, you want to do even within our church. That, God, even through these studies, that even today, Lord, that you would be poking and prodding our hearts, God, stirring us, Lord, for the things of your kingdom. Lord God, those who are in a state, Lord, of, of brokenness, of hurt, Lord, there's maybe some hopelessness that exists. God, would you... Lord, be reviving hope this morning. Be renewing hope, Lord, in people's hearts and minds. God, bring healing in those areas of hurt. Lord God, for those who have become indifferent and apathetic, cold and calloused maybe, that God, you would forgive us Lord, forgive us. Lord, change us. Lord, soften us. And God, revive us once again. Lord, that we would be completely on fire for Jesus Christ. And God, if there's anybody here today, they've never just come to that place in their own lives, Lord, where they've humbled themselves before you, seen their own need for you, Jesus, seen their own sinfulness, cried out to you to save them, to forgive them. Would you be working, Lord, in their hearts even now? And if that's anybody here today, and you're going, that's me. I need Jesus' salvation. I need my sins forgiven. I want to know that when I breathe my last breath, that I will be in the presence of God. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. If that's you this morning, would you stand where you're at so I can pray for you? That's anybody here, you're going, look, that's me. I want to make that decision for Jesus. This is your opportunity. Maybe this morning, as we've been considering even this aspect of our, our witness potentially laying in ruins, or maybe there being that indifference or that apathy or that coldness that might exist in our hearts, if if that's you this morning, Jesus has been putting his finger on that thing in your life and you're going, look, like I know that God wants to bring a change. Would you stand?
I'd love to be able to pray for us this morning. I'm already standing, but if I wasn't, I would be standing now with you. Anyone else? And maybe you're just going, look, I, I want to have the heart of the Lord once again. Awesome. Lord, I pray for these who are standing. That God, in these areas, Lord, where maybe there is indifference or apathy or complacency, where maybe there is a callousness or a coldness, Lord, that God, you would revive once again. Lord, that you would rebuild and renew once again, Lord, a fervency, a heart of compassion. Lord, your love for others, your eyes, Lord, to see people in situations the way that you do. Lord God, would you meet each one? And Lord, would you begin, Lord, to soften and to realign and redirect your people this morning? And God, as we seek to continue in this attitude of worship, God, we pray that you would, Lord, continue to help us to see how great you are, Lord, how good you are. Lord, that you're about us. Lord, you love us. And God, just before we, we close in prayer, if there is anybody this morning, maybe here today, maybe online, maybe they're listening or watching this later on, God, that hasn't made that decision for you. And Lord, they want that. I just encourage you, if that's you, that in your heart you would just say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, I believe that you are my Savior. Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me? Lord, would you cleanse me? Jesus, I repent. I turn away from my sin. And I turn to you in faith, in trust. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again. Lord, would you seal me with your spirit? Would you give me the promise and hope of eternal life with you? And God, would you empower me to live for you every single day of my life? I just encourage you, if you've prayed that today, the Lord has met you, he's heard you, he will save you. And Lord, as we worship you now in these songs, God, would it be in response to the work that you've already been doing through your word? And Father, we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.